This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. Raphael Warnock, as a result of this runoff, is more of a national figure than he was before. And Dr. Kavita Patel. 2024 does not look very good. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we came out of the midterms and are going into another election cycle and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, Norm, we've got quite a bit of terrain to cover. We have the election results from Georgia. We have Kristen Cinema's maybe not so surprising announcement, but something that came. And then some another, you know, some other events in the week. Why don't we go ahead and get started? We're gonna try to save maybe some of the cinema conversation for our members only content, but by no by no means do we need to avoid it. So Norm, take me through what you were doing on Tuesday night. I'll just briefly share with you that uh, there was a running bet between some of us who work in the Obama administration and then some current Biden administration people. It was very interesting where I was very nervous. And as I was watching the returns and Steve Kornacki and his khakis on the leaderboard on MSNBC, I, I continued to be nervous. There was an eerie calm amongst the Biden folks where they just kind of felt like, no, you know, Warnock's going to win. But no matter what was happening, as Warnacki was at the board with like a 50-50 split, et cetera. What was, what, tell me how you spent your Tuesday and what your thoughts were coming out of it. Well, as I watched also, Kavita, I was not as nervous because I was also looking on Twitter, which still has some very good content, even if it's like the Titanic right before it hit the iceberg. But following people like David Wasserman from the Cook Political Report, who's really a very good analyst, you know, if you're on television and the story of the night is the Georgia election, you don't want to call it too early anyhow. But what we knew as we looked at where the returns were still out, they were more from the blue areas. And it was probably not going to be quite as close, even as it appeared. And I was fairly confident by nine o'clock or so that Walker was going to lose and Warnock was going to win. Although there, you still have that element of nervousness until somebody of significance actually calls it. There are a couple of things to note about this. One is a very interesting piece by Nate Cohn of the Times, who's a, a quite a careful data analyst. And it was that in Georgia and in many of the other states in, in the Tuesday elections in November, the Democratic turnout was actually a little disappointing. And that what made the difference, that what enabled Democrats to keep the Senate to get as close as they did in the House was a lot of Republicans who voted for Democrats because of the horrific quality of the Republican opponents. And you could look even at Georgia, for example, where Brian Kemp, who is not my cup of tea, as we say, but is closer to being a normal Republican than Herschel Walker, certainly, won pretty handily against the strong candidacy of Stacey Abrams, while Warnock edged ahead of Walker, even if he didn't get to the 50% mark. And the same proved to be true with, of course, what is a lower turnout in the uh, runoff uh, election. And what it tells us is we have to watch very carefully to see where the Republican Party goes as we head to 2024. Will they nominate more walkers? Of course, it's discouraging that somebody as 
utterly unqualified and dangerous as Herschel Walker could get 48% or so of Georgian voters. But those candidacies are more losers than they are winners. And where will they go next time? When they had contested primaries, they tended to choose the more radical candidates. Will that still be the case as we head to 2024? And then, of course, we could get to that larger reality of the difference that it makes with a 51-49 Senate, although we have other things to talk about there with the caveat of cinema and very possibly a mansion. But what a difference it makes compared to 50-50. Yeah, so it's interesting. Going into Tuesday, I thought it was uh, worth actually just looking at how the two campaigns actually spent their final weekend. Because I think you're right, by the way, that this says a lot about not only where the Republican Party, you know, how, I, and I've heard a number of kind of, you know, longtime career Republican strategists who have reflected in some of the insights that they've made. But going into the final weekend, um, Warnock was doing like tons of events across the state. He's been known to do that kind of flood zone type of strategy. And it was Walker who had literally just one event, and it was with the illustrious Tim Scott and John Kennedy from Louisiana. And so, that was, you know, Warnock was, while Walker did like kind of the one-time event and was appealing to what I would say is that northern part of the state that tends to be more conservative, Warnock obviously like playing to what I think is definitely his base with union workers, students, and kind of really big rallies to try to like kind of accelerate the pace by getting both black voters and then just like, you know, young voters in general to come out and vote. And then coming out of it, it was very interesting. Not only did some Republicans, longtime Republicans kind of say Seth Weathers and some others who had already cited, you know, how weak Walker was as a candidate and how strong Warnock's ground game was, which I think we all would agree with. But then coming out of it, just the implications of the fact that, number one, the vote was pretty darn close, too close for my comfort. And I agree, Dave Wasserman, who I think is like the default I don't know if it's the right way to say he's a little bit of the election whisperer in the sense that if he says something, we all feel just emotionally like, okay, we can get invested in what Dave thinks because of his experience and his leaning on uh, pretty reliable data. And he's been someone that we can trust in when he says something like he did on Twitter, like you said, at around 830 at night. But I thought that what was kind of interesting coming out of it is some of the Seth and others also saying that they felt like the GOP had undermined kind of the role of early voting and had been by even with Trump, you know, in 2020, by putting this wholesale blame on the role of early voting and the fraud that is committed in early voting, actually kind of undercutting the GOP's ability to use early voting to their strategic advantage and to try to try to close some of the gaps that the GOP has. Now, what I also thought was for just in terms of like, so kind of what happens now that uh, Warnock has won Georgia to me, right? I mean, tell me, Norm, do you agree? It's a purple state. I mean, or I feel like now we've got enough proof. This is a purple state. And then it feels like Stacey Abrams, we said this before, that she deserves just a ton of credit, even though she lost her governor's race, her apparatus that she put into place is that very turnout that helped this race happened, this win happened for Warnock. And that's a bit of a blueprint maybe, right? For fl- for kind of flipping these red states. Tell me what you think about that, Norm, just those thoughts to, to my comment. 
I agree with you. And the reality is, even if the Democratic turnout was not as robust as we might want, and I think there's an ongoing problem, not just with Hispanic voters, which we've seen in many states, but with African-American voters without the enthusiasm level that they need. But that structure in place overcame a Georgia law that had plenty of elements to discourage votes, suppress votes, make it more difficult for people to vote. And we saw, of course, a lot of instances where people waited in line. But the other thing about Georgia is it's these suburban voters in Fulton County, in Cobb County, and others who now make the difference in close races. And the Democratic Party has to pay attention to those suburban voters and make sure that it does not drive them back into the arms of a radical Republican Party. One other comment here, too, which is Raphael Warnock, as a result of this runoff, is more of a national figure than he was before. He's going to get more scrutiny. The fact is, in his first two years in the Senate, he was a star. He just was a terrific senator. He has a lot of abilities, abilities that if they don't rank exactly with Barack Obama, put them in the wheelhouse there and down the road. And who knows where we're going to be with 2024, much less 2028, hoping we still have elections by 2028. But Warnock is now in a different place. If he had won, albeit narrowly, in November, Of course, he would still be a significant figure, but this vaults him to a different level because of the focus that came to this race and to him. And of course, he ran a brilliant campaign. He did. And and I do think that Warnock, I have had a chance to meet and interact with him because maybe it's worth bringing attention to like, what is Raphael Warnock? What has he done in the Senate? And he's he's actually been an incredible advocate on health care. And what I think is very interesting about his approach Remember, junior senator, uh, by and large, because of the structure of the Senate and the power that's held on committees for more senior senators, it's really hard to like break out of the pack when you're, you know, literally like the hundredth senator. And certainly, Warnock has been trying to by really being hard, pressing hard on expanding access to health through a public option and an early Medicare buy-in. Something that I think really does distinguish him. It, it both helps him have like a solid footing with what I'll call Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all kind of, and some of the AOC and some of like uh, really progressive Democrats. But I think by doing things like an early Medicare buy-in as an option or a public option, he allows for him to be able to swim amongst moderates, especially on healthcare. And I'm a huge fan of the fact that he's also really been behind some of the, uh, specifically some of the legislation on curbing maternal mortality I mean, he's just somebody who really does kind of live and he's a preacher, preach through like how how grassroots these issues are and how real his his ability to kind of connect with people. So before we started recording, our incredible producer, Grant Haver, was talking about, you know, what about Warnock, the presidential candidate? And it's very funny coming off of the fact you and I know, you personally know uh, the new governor of Maryland, the governor-elect of Maryland, Wes Moore who I would have said, you know, out of the entire array of like young Democrats and people who are coming up in the party, I would have put my money, I still do probably on Wes Moore having presidential aspirations. It wasn't until our producer kind of said, you know, what do you think? Now, 
you could say that Warnock should have, to be presidential, he should have blown this election out of the water, etc. I think that that's wrong. I think the fact that he was able to secure this during the time, knowing Brian Kemp, knowing Donald Trump, knowing that Herschel Walker, who at best should be described as like a comatose dummy of a candidate, still had some life in him, thanks to some of these surrogates, I think, and and just the the pathos in, in Georgia at this time. I think Warnock does have an incredible ability to just go very far in the party. And I'm just thankful because the times I've interacted with him, Norm, there was this pressure that he had, obviously, not just for the reelect, but there was this lame duck, like how much can Warnock do in the couple of years that he's there? I'm so glad he's secured six years because I think we're just going to start to see like what a real, like what, what Reverend Warnock can do now that he's got a little bit of room to maneuver in the Senate. It's striking, by the way, that Georgia, of all states, has an African-American senator and a Jewish senator, more than many Democratic, very blue states could claim. It's also the case that Warnock has this real moral authority. He is not just a minister. He is a minister at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's church. He has the cadence and the ability. Westmore has a great life story. And as a governor is going to have some opportunities to do some things. But what it underscores to me is there's a pretty deep and impressive bench of younger Democrats in positions of authority. And let's not forget the trifecta in Michigan of women, including an extraordinarily impressive governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Also, you could imagine being of presidential material down the road, you could have a really impressive cadre of people with those ambitions, whether any of them make it is another story, but it's a, a different dynamic, I think, including that of the Republican Party. I did want to offer one aside. I just can't help myself. When you mentioned that the surrogates campaigning for Walker included John Kennedy, this is a man who has an Ivy League education and was at Oxford, who people I know who have interacted with him or known him long before he became a senator, including back when he was a Democrat, his accent was very different. He has put on this Southern cornpone accent, and he is an utter embarrassment to the Senate. He goes on television a lot and says just outrageously stupid and inflammatory things. He is not as bad as Ron Johnson, not as bad as Rand Paul. And there are other contenders, but I just cringe every time I see the phoniness show up either on television or in a feed. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive, 
because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I love that. And you know what? You, I, don't, I, I love the fact that, uh, one, I do think we could spend uh, a lot of time talking about the, the fictitious nature of John Kennedy, including the fact that it just kills me that he's got the namesake of my former boss and can't stand that people are like, which Senator Kennedy? And I said, there's only one. You don't need to confuse it with another one. But you just made me think about something that I don't, that I know we have not brought up on this podcast and we should. And that's Biden's 2024 primary calendar. So we're talking about White House. We're talking about Warnock. What's your take? We, so just to catch up listeners, uh, you know, Joe Biden's made a big push to make South Carolina the first major battleground in the Democratic presidential primaries. And I think there's a lot of people that are talking about like, you know, party strategists about how that's like very favorable for the Democratic Party overall. Obviously, there are people who don't want this and people who have pointed out that this creates a natural advantage potentially for one Kamala Harris vice president for a future run in the White House. Could this be him setting her up? Maybe probably not necessarily the front thing in mind, but a factor. What was your reaction to this? By the way, I'm a big fan, spent my time for the Obama campaign in South Carolina and saw firsthand just this incredible grassroots movement that that campaign launched and sustained and how it's paid off dividends, you know, two decades later. So incredibly curious, um, Norm, what your thoughts on that and kind of why do you think Biden did it? What was what was his motivation? This has been something that a lot of reformers have been trying to do for a very long time. And I am in favor of it for a couple of reasons. What do you want in a primary process? If you're going to have a primary process, it may not be the best way to select a presidential candidate, but there are two elements. You want to have a primary process that focuses on representing the constituents that are the core part of your party. And you want to emphasize the most competitive states so that you are seeing on the ground what it's going to take to win those states. Iowa fits neither of those categories. It used to be a very competitive state. Democrats won Iowa quite a bit. It is now firmly, completely a red state. And you could see that not just in the huge victory margin that uh, Trump built up in both 2016 and 2020, but also in the fact that in a Senate contest, with the uh, feeble Chuck Grassley, who will be like 95 at the end of this term if he's still around, running against a very credible uh, former um, military heavyweight, Mike Franken, and one handily in the end. So this is not a state that's going to be competitive. But even more than that, it is a state that is as white as any other state in the nation. And the idea that that sliver of the Democratic Party would have a significant impact winnowing out some candidates, winnowing in others, doesn't make sense anymore. Now, South Carolina is not a competitive state for Democrats at this point. It's not going to be a state that's going to vote blue in a presidential election. North Carolina isn't there yet, but it's closer to it. But South Carolina has a really substantial population of voters of color. And there you can get some sense 
of empowerment for those voters, which is going to be really important going back to our previous discussion of how you have to worry about whether African-American voters are going to say the Democratic Party is for me. And of course, it also is great for Biden because he is so strong there. That's what gave him the nomination. Uh, Of course, it was Jim Clyburn, but it was the vault to prominence. But, you know, moving from this very small state that is not representative and you're not going to win to states that are more representative and then states that are highly competitive and you can win, it just makes a ton of sense to me. It does. And and we should add to that that South Carolina in the mix with other states and what this seems like taking away Iowa, which I think is incredible and good, (laughs) brings in the ability for Democrats to compete in states like not just South Carolina, Nevada, New Hampshire, where you have like this pretty good mix across the board. So I think that it's the right move on the Democratic Party. Interestingly enough, no shock, Iowa has already said, doesn't matter what the DNC votes on, doesn't matter where the penalties are, they still plan on holding kind of the earliest vote. And I can see why they would say that. But I think that quickly, Iowa falls kind of by the wayside and that you really see the three primaries, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada being the, com- being the really competitive ones. And I think, uh, again, a conversation about um, it's good for Biden and possibly good for Harris. Which also then brings me to kind of the next point about how much time it will be before we see Biden potentially doing his announcement to run for 2024. And I think that now that we've had, you know, we knew that the party wanted Warnock and have that election secured. We'll talk about cinema in a, in a little bit in our members section. But what, uh, what would you project is happening right now in the White House in terms of thinking about messaging vis a vis 2024? So without saying it formally, uh, Biden's made clear that he intends to run. Now, obviously, there's a lot that can happen between now and when that primary season actually begins in 2024, including his own health. I will tell you, I'm sure you've had this too, Kavita. Lots of people say to me, he shouldn't be running. He'd be 86. He should announce now that he's not running. And my response to that is, Every time we see what happens with a lame duck president, it is destructive of governance and destructive of the party because then you get all the other pretenders to the throne begin to jockey for position. And they're just as interested in undercutting their rivals as they are in figuring out how you're going to get through the next two years and position yourself to be able to win. And since we would also have under those circumstances, an awful lot of Democrats who would like to be the president and like to be the nominee moving to undercut Kamala Harris along the way, inflicting further damage, not just on her, but on the Biden-Harris team. It would be foolish for Biden to take himself out of it. But I also think he has plenty of time, having signaled that he intends to run, to make that formal announcement. And that's probably the right place, I think, for him to be for himself, but also for his White House and for the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think the the health issue is interesting. I, a, a lot of uh, folks have asked, and it begs the question, like, so really separate out for a minute that Trump and he similar ages, but what really is kind of the measure of competency in a president's? Because that that's really what people are alluding to when they say that somebody is X years old and, quote, can't do the job. 
Yes, we know it is a physically taxing job. All you have to do is look at Barack Obama before inauguration and then just, you know, six months into the job and he aged about 20 years. So yes, it's physically taxing. We already know that Biden can handle that. So it's really about mental acuity, ability to make complex decisions. And the truth is that medically speaking, there is no reason an 86-year-old should have any, even though there are probability of bad things happening, strokes, heart attacks, cancers being discovered, that is not something that somehow suddenly just gets, you know, drops off a cliff and all of a sudden you, you know, you're in a disaster mode. I mean, this is a man who's probably had some of the best health screening and access to health I can imagine anybody has. So I'm actually not as worried about the implications of somebody being older from a mental acuity, physical health, those perspectives. It's the continuity of government. And, and I think that's why I've always taken the vice presidency pretty seriously because you just never know what happens in life. And so I think that, you know, you're right. I think the more distance they can put, no matter what that is. But I do suspect, as I know that there's a lot of White House staff turning over and that we're already seeing kind of inklings of some major exits, this is the time because it'll be important in 2023 to, to have whomever the party's nominee is, give them the best advantage. And I know that that's uh, something to look forward to. And, and Harris, there has been no signals that I have seen that there is disappointment inside the Oval or in the West Wing with Harris's performance. So I think the, I think the president and the vice president get along very well. And I think for all purposes, I would look to her to be the person that carries the mantle. But that means that she's going to have to take what I would say has been a tough first couple of years for a lot of reasons and turn that into something more valuable and appealing to the voters. And in that case, she can take some lessons from Stacey Abrams, from, as you mentioned, just an incredible slate of women who have run, some have lost, and some have won. And she has, I think, a lot of that tailwind behind her. So let's, I want to thank our loyal listeners and bring kind of the, this section of Words Matter to a close. Thank everyone for joining us. And really helpful as you listen to this, if you can rate, review, subscribe to this podcast on your feeds and share them as well with your friends. And if you like this episode and want even more out of your conversation and you want to get the perfect stocking stuffer for all your friends and colleagues, become a member of the DSR network. It's less than one of those incredibly large pumpkin lattes per month, but you can also get access to our bonus segments and including the one next where we're going to talk about Kristen Cinema. Words Matter is a production of the DSR network. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Cottonoir, and our great producer is Grant Haver. Next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on December 15th. See you then.